It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So we're in the middle of World War One, and this is an entire series that I'm doing over the summer and fall training season called Spiritual Lessons from World War One. And technically, it's somewhat of a misnomer to say that I am in the middle of technically I'm in the beginning of, but I'm in the middle of my series. How about that? Because the series is likely going to land somewhere around 42 episodes. You know, that's just a, a rough uh, hewn idea based on seven weeks of three a week. And uh, I'm sorry, 14 weeks of, of three a week. And uh, it is a unique adventure to go through World War I, which is one of the reasons why I started with World War II. Uh, you know, a couple years ago, I did a 93-part series on World War II that was very satisfying to my soul. I really enjoyed it. But you have a clear evil in World War II with Adolf Hitler, and you have this, the clear good guy with Winston Churchill. It's very interesting, and it's a lot easier to see the spiritual parallels. I've spent a lot more time in World War I than World War II, ironically, over the years, and I'm extremely fascinated by it. But it's harder to know how to convert it into a daily thunder atmosphere. But obviously the fact that I'm doing it shows that I decided to risk it, and I feel that there's enough there. And it really has been tremendously impacting uh, to me. It's very different feel. If you were to try and compare it directly with like daring to do as Stanley Dale, it's not the same sort of spiritual impact. It's different. And it's more uh, like, how do we approach this battle on a day in and day out basis? So if you're in the middle of spiritual battle, going through something like spiritual lessons from World War I is actually very helpful because there's a constant bait from the enemy towards the wrong sort of fighting. And that's where we're at right now. We, in the last message, which was called Stalemate, we were beginning to unpack the fact of what World War I is going to become because of the nature of the battle and how it's taking shape, and that's, it's a battle of entrenchment. And so you have two sides that are stuck in trenches, you know, seven feet deep, even more sometimes, and this, this line called the Western Front is going to weave all the way from the English Channel down to Switzerland. It is this massive uh, barricade on both sides, and there's barbed wire in between, and there's this gap in between the barbed wire called no man's land. And that's literally this jagged line that is going to make its way across uh, France and Belgium and in 1914 through 1918. And it's going to, at certain times, seem like an impossible war to win. And yet all it's doing is devouring lives with every passing day. What do you do? And so what I was saying in the last episode is this is the bait of the enemy. The enemy wants to bait us into a stalemate sort of battle. And if any of you have ever tasted of legalism, legalism is one example of that, where you have a high ideal of winning a war and you esteem the right thing, but you are trying to go about it in the wrong fashion. You are digging in your own pockets, into your own strength, and under the rule of law, attempting to overcome an enemy which is known as sin in the flesh. And Jesus in the New Testament is going to be very clear that you can't do that. And then Paul the Apostle is going to go into great depth showing you that that battle doesn't work, but here is the battle that does. And so that stalemate 
is a bait of the enemy. And I'm, we were at what's called the first battle of Ypres. And it's funny because when they had the battle of Ypres, it wasn't called the first battle, but they didn't know there were going to be two other battles of Ypres in this. And I'm going to go through the same map system I went through last time just to catch us up and bring us uh, to uh, the front where the battle is right now. This one is part 23, and it's called The Sincere Soldier. I may have had more name changes and title changes on this one than maybe any other message in the series so far. This has been a hard one to name. When we get to the end, you can sort of reflect back on, ah, I can see why that was a hard one to name. But The Sincere Soldier, and that works. It's just, you know, it's, whether or not you'd say, is that as satisfying as you desire a title to be? No, it's not, but it's, it's still a good title. Now, this could be somewhat of a butchering of a quote that has impacted my life, but when you're in a hurry and you're trying to put a quote up, I just need to say, this could be considered a paraphrase. It could be word for word. I very rarely, when I do it out of my memory, do something word for word, but this is a quote that impacted my life uh, growing up and in the early developmental stages of my Christian life, and it is this from A.W. Tozier, sincerity doesn't save you from being wrong. And what we're going to see in World War I is we see a whole lot of sincerity on the side of the soldiers. And so when you're dealing with the sincere soldier, you have soldiers from Great Britain that are going to sign up for a cause that they believe is holy and just. You have soldiers from France that are going to sign up for a cause that they feel are, is holy and just. You have, you have uh, soldiers in Russia, soldiers in Germany that are going to sign up for a war that they believe is holy and just. It's interesting. It's like everyone's convinced that they're right in this and that it is worthy of killing other humans to carry out their national agenda. And obviously at some point you have to evaluate and say, but is it? Was it? In other words, you can be sincere, and a lot of us actually can look at sincerity as being a form of correctness. Well, at least they're sincere. I mean, they really mean it. Yeah, but that doesn't actually mean you're right. And if you are sincere and dead wrong, it's a dangerous place to be. And so what I wanted to do in this particular message is something that I don't think we've done the entire time so far, which is sort of examine one soldier's life, and follow him through. He fought in the first battle of Ypres, and so I feel like timeliness to it is, is there. But very few men in the very beginning of this war are gonna make it home alive. So very few are actually able to tell the tale of what happened. And very few, even that did get home, have the capacity mentally to actually rehash what just happened. They are so scarred and jarred by what took place that they can't even speak about it. And some of us know that phenomenon because our grandfathers or whatever were in World War II. And it's just like, hey, uh, granddad, do you ever talk about World War II? No. And they can't talk about it, even you know, years after they, they've come home. Well, that's the same with World War I. In fact, that shock, uh, which, what's now called PTSD, or back then it was called shell shock, which would, was not something that was ever studied in medical school, it was something that was discovered after when they were dealing with all these soldiers that were coming home and they didn't have any explanation for psychologically and physically what they were dealing with. And they're going to come up with the term shell shock. When you're in a trench and you're being bombarded with artillery fire all day long, all night long, all day long, all night long, all day long, all night long, that it has a tendency to unnerve you. 
And so as a result, this reality of what's taking place in war is actually very difficult for us to ever hear all these years later. It's like, what did happen? Well, we know the data. We know how many people died. We know where it took place. We know what the generals were doing. Well, but they were 10 miles back from the battle line. What happened to the soldiers in the front? And so I'm going to take one soldier from the German side, which is very interesting because I've already given sort of a foundation of the German mindset in World War I. And if you've missed that, there's, there's quite a few. Usually look for any title that has William in it. Is the, the Kaiser of Germany, which is like Caesar or King, his name was Wilhelm. And so I've been using the term William. Someone was saying, well, Eric, if you keep degrading his name, it's going to be Billy uh, soon. Uh, but his name, it was classically understood as like Kaiser Wilhelm or Wilhelm, right? And so I've been calling him William. So if you see William anywhere in the titles, that's one you might want to listen to because it's going to give you insight into the German mindset going into this. And this soldier, of course, came in with the same. He's sincere. He's a sincere believer that Russia and France and Great Britain is encircling Germany, that his homeland is at stake, and if they don't move now into action, into military action to defend it, then all is lost. Now, for those of us that have gone through this entire storyline, we recognize that that's somewhat of a stretch, that the government is selling the people. It's called propaganda, and war involves a lot of propaganda. And so it's interesting because a government could have evil intentions. They could be desiring territory. They could be desiring to wipe out a people group. You know, and if you study World War II, you're going to see that as a very real sub-agenda. But they don't always share that agenda with the soldiers. So the soldiers on the front line are usually given a different line. And so my second message in this entire series is called Realpolitik. And that's sort of like, okay, that's really what's happening. That's, that's the real uh, motive of what's happening in these governments. However, these soldiers in the front line, the guy I'm going to talk about is a private. In other words, he's an infantryman at the front. He has no idea about the governmental political sides of this. He's just dealing with a sincere desire to stand for his motherland. And so just to get inside of that mind is very interesting. So here's our map, and I'm just going to go through this real quick. The middle uh, purplish-red countries are the central powers. Uh, Germany, sort of the head honcho of it. They're going to be the aggressor in World War I, and that's a whole story in and of itself, but they're the top country uh, there in the red. And uh, those blue countries, Russia, France, and the United Kingdom, are going to be called the Triple Entente or the Allied Forces. And so I'm focusing in on France, and there's Paris, France, which was the original agenda of the Germans was to sweep in through Belgium and to take Paris, France in 39 days. This should have been a short war. And for all practical purposes, it looked like it was going to be a short war. And the Germans were correct, and their plan was brilliant, and then something happened. And I've gone through in great detail the turning of von Kluck's flank and then the attack at the called the Battle of the Marne. And that's going to lead to a German retreat to the Battle of the Aisne. And if you haven't followed any of this, you're like, okay, I have no idea what the guy just said. And that's fine. You know, you can go back and catch up. I'm just trying to get you to current present tense moment. And so then we have the Battle of the Aisne. That's the Red Star. It's very close to Paris, 90 miles away from Paris. And that's going to be a key battle that is going to start this invention in World War I of trench warfare. It's a stalemate, and they don't know what to do, so they're going to try and chase uh, towards the English Channel, uh, the ocean waters, to see if they can outflank the other 
nation. And that's the only way they know how to fight wars, to outflank each other. That's classic military uh, battle strategy. And so it's called the race to the sea. And they're, they're not really racing to the sea. They're racing to get around each other to see who can outflank the other. Because if you can outflank someone, you can devastate them from the backside. And so they're going to head towards the sea, which is right at the corner of Belgium is where they're headed. And then you're going to see this other line that is already formed over the first month and a half of the battle. And that line that you see, the red, is going to now be called the Western Front. And everyone's going to entrench and it's going to be stuck there for four years. So that green circle that I put at the top, I'm gonna to zoom in and create that same green circle here. It's the same you know, geography, it's just a different map, which I thought was a pretty cool map. And you see the Kingdom of Belgium, and then you see France down below, and that little zone is going to become a very key one, and that western front is gonna go right through it, and right in the middle of that is a town called Ypres. And so this green circle, the secondary green circle that I just put in is typically known as the Fields of Flanders or the Flanders Field. This is where most of the dying in World War I is going to take place, right there in that little circle. And yet inside that little circle is Ypres. And this is where our first battle of Ypres is going to take place. And inside of that little green circle, inside the other green circle, what did I say? 1.265 million casualties in that little circle. So that's where we are, that's where we finished. This battle is going to be from October through November of 1914, and it's a very, very significant conflict because it's the last gasp for the Germans to get around the edge before they reach the sea. And so as a result, the Germans are throwing everything in it, and they're gonna take all of their uh, young students that they've recruited that are so excited to go to war, but they're 16, 17, and 18 years old. They really have no battle experience. Most of them don't even know how to shoot a gun, but they're rushed into the battle, and they're going to outnumber the British because they're going to take all these young recruits and untrained. They're going to have massive amounts of numbers, but they're facing what likely was the most skilled military units in all of the world at the time, which was the BEF, the British Expeditionary Force. And even though they outnumber the British Expeditionary Force six to one in some cases, they're going to be devastated. And over 100,000 young students are going to be killed just in this one battle. So the duty of a young German boy, defend the motherland. This is what they grow up with. This is what they're trained in school for. It's interesting because, you know, I think about my upbringing and my love for this country. You see, there's a lot of training right now which is going to go contrary to a love of America. And yet, I grew up with a love for America. I have a, I have a father who's named Winston. He was born right in the middle of World War II, and, you know, which was right during the heroics of Winston Churchill. And so my grandpa was a patriot. My dad grew up with a very high view of the United States of America. Uh, his favorite president, Ronald Reagan, and so in, in high school, I wrote a paper, uh, it was a persuasive essay on why Ronald Reagan was the best president ever, you know, and the teacher didn't really like it. But I was convinced, why? Because my dad was convinced, right, that Ronald Reagan was the best president. But this is how, when you grow up this way, you can understand the verve of patriotism. It's a very real thing, and that's all that this young soldier has. 
He has the verve of patriotism, and he trusts his country. He trusts that his country's motives are good and healthy and noble, especially when they're surrounded by these antagonists, by Russia and France and Great Britain. Great Britain's betrayed them. They've always been a friend and an ally, and now they're siding with France, and France is a mortal foe and a mortal enemy. Therefore, the Germans feel justly that they need to act to defend themselves. And so this young student is going to be the same. So the sincere soldier, his name is Addy Heidler, and he's a German infantry man who's going to be born in 1889. He's going to be 25 at, the, at that time. And so what do we know about Addy Heidler? He was a painter of landscapes before the war. He was 25 years old in 1914. Addy's father died when he was 14. His mother died when he was 18. He actually failed his physical exam and was at first rejected for military service. And then somehow, this is like one of those classic stories where the kid can't, don't, doesn't accept the fact that he's not, uh, didn't pass the, mil- the uh, physical exam. So he reapplies and it looks almost like it's a clerical error. They allow him to join the Bavarian List Regiment. And so in hindsight, they look back and they go, we have no idea how he got in, but he did. So he joined the Bavarian List Regiment as a volunteer in 1914. So he is going to be at the first Battle of Ypres, and this is the Defend the Motherland. This is where the massacre of the innocents is going to take place, and he has a front row seat. So here's Addy Heidler, and uh, he wrote a book afterwards, which is why we actually can understand what happened in his life. He's a private. Uh, technically, I think the official description was he was an infantryman at uh, this battle. But this is what he wrote in his, uh, this is why it's so rare actually to have a, a, a memoir of the war in such detail, and it's very well written. At last the day came when we left Munich to begin the fulfillment of our duty. I felt as though my heart would burst, and then came a damp cold night in Flanders through which we slept in silence. And when the day began to emerge from the mist, suddenly in an an iron greeting, well, that's like bullets whizzing or artillery shells firing, an iron greeting came whizzing at us over our heads. And with the sharp report, sent the little pellets flying between our ranks, ripping up the wet ground. But even before the little clouds had passed from 200 throats, the first hurrah rose to meet the first messengers of death. Then a crackling and then a roaring and a singing and a howling began. With feverish eyes, each one of us was drawn forward faster and faster until suddenly past turnip fields and hedges, the fight began. The fight of man against man. All of these young soldiers are going off to war with this idea of what we've called the romance of war. And they genuinely believe this is going to be fun. This is like what every boy is built for from a young age, is to go out. It'd be the equivalent of, hey, let's go climb that difficult tree over there. And you go, you could break your neck doing that. I know. But doesn't that look fun? And that's the way they would approach war. I know that that isn't the way most of us would approach war, but we are post-World War I and World War II. We, we have grown up in modern warfare, and modern warfare is not romantic. Well, none of these guys know that yet. And so they are eager. They're singing songs. They're giving high fives, if that's what they would do in Germany. I don't know. Uh, but they are they're schoolboys, in a sense, running off to battle the fight of man against man. And from the distance, the strains of a song reached our ears coming closer and closer, leaping from company to company, just as death plunged a busy hand into our ranks. The song reached us too, and we passed it along. Now, I'm not very good with German here, but 
Deutschland, Deutschland, über alles, über alles in der Welt. How was that? Was, was that impressive? Hey, see, look at that. I, I, I might be better at German than I thought. So here's a picture of uh, Addy. So there he is right there. Everyone always had mustaches back then. And so he has one of those cool mustaches. Well, I guess there's a few guys on the picture that don't. But most guys, as we've seen, always have a mustache. And then we also have a, a dog. Oops. Well, that was weird. A dog named Fushi that he is going to rescue. And all, he's going to be in every picture you ever see of Addy. Uh, so Addie Heidler continues, four days later we came back. Even our step had changed. 17-year-old boys now look like men. The volunteers of the List Regiment may not have learned to fight properly, but they knew how to die like soldiers. This was the beginning. Thus it went on year after year, but the romance of battle had been replaced by horror. The enthusiasm gradually cooled and the exuberant joy was stifled by mortal fear. The time came when every man had to struggle between the instinct of self-preservation and the admonitions of duty. I too was not spared by this struggle. Always when death was on the hunt, a vague something tried to revolt, strove to represent itself to the weak body as reason. Yet it was only cowardice, which in such disguises tries to ensnare the individual. A grave tugging and warning set in, and often it was only the last remnant of conscience which decided the issue. Imagine what it would be like to be in a trench and having machine gun fire overhead, bombs, you know, artillery shells exploding around you, shrapnel flying around, and you know that in no man's land, all you need to do is stick your finger up above the trench and they'll shoot it. I mean, this is like any movement, like every bit of movement was a big deal. So if you're going to get this entire body and jump out of the trench, it's called going over the top, if you're going to go over the top, you literally you're exposing yourself to the enemy and you're running straight towards the enemy. I mean, you could say, what sort of guts does that take? Well, every single one of these soldiers is going through this process that Addie is talking about. And that is that there seems to be a pause that, you know, you can think in your head, I'm going to do that. When I get to that position, I'm going to do that. But then when they get to that time, there is something holding them back. And I, I mean, I know what that is. Have you ever been on one of those, you, you crawl up a, a, a tall, uh, like power line type of structure, big pole, to get to the top to this little disc you stand on, and then you need to jump out three feet and grab, what do you call those, uh, those things that you know, take you, I, I can't remember what, the, no, it's not a trapeze, it's like a trapeze, but they're on a line, a zip line. So the zip line type of uh, thing, and I, I've been on the top of one of those standing on this little disc, and I need to jump. Why they don't just have it right here, and why I need to actually jump for it, I mean, that's unfair. Now, what's interesting is I'm in this huge, ugly-looking harness the whole time, right? You know, it's all snug around my rear end and everything, and I still can't get my body to move. And I'm standing up there telling my body, all right, you are going to jump, Ludi. All right, these legs belong to me. They're my legs, and I can tell them what to do. And then everyone behind me is like, hurry up, go. You know, if you're going to get in line, then go, do it. And I tell you what, there is something that I understand what Addie's talking about. There is a pause. And it's, it's something that is baked inside of us as humans that when we sense danger, when we sense a probable bullet, well, we have a tendency to hold back. And I mean, I think 
it makes sense that we would. But could you imagine what it's like for a soldier? They have no choice. They have to go over the top. And, you know, to disobey direct orders can lead to what's called a capital punishment, a firing squad. You do not want to be the example soldier that is set in motion. They have motivating factors for how to get soldiers to do what they need to do. It's like, well, you could either die by a firing squad or you could be noble and heroic and live for your homeland. Okay. And I, that's, a, that's a rough, rough uh, choice there. Yet the more this voice admonished one to caution, the louder and more insistent were its lures. The sharper resistance grew until at last, after a long inner struggle, consciousness of duty emerged victorious. By the winter of 1915-1916, the struggle had been for me decided. At last my will was undisputed master. If in the first days I went over the top with rejoicing and laughter, I was now calm and determined, and this was enduring." Now fate could bring on the ultimate test without my nerves shattering or my reason failing. The young volunteer had become an old soldier, and this transformation had occurred in the whole army. It had issued hard and old from the internal battles, and, from those, and for those who could not stand up under the storm, well, they were broken. If you couldn't stand up under this storm, you were broken. It's that simple. That's like the final statement. It's like a young soldier becomes an old soldier. You face this type of thing day in and day out, and suddenly your nerves harden. Now you have to admit, when, you, when you're hearing something like that, you're like, oh, that's very impressive. And as a young man, well, I don't know if I'd be considered young anymore. As a man, maybe I should say that, because I don't want to use the word old, right? As a man, I can definitely recognize, and I esteem. I esteem what Addie is saying there, that he has actually come to a place of calm, where he can go over the top and be at total rest, total ease. He knows his job, and he's determined to fulfill it. And I mean, I esteem it. It's like, that's amazing. So here's one more picture. And you'll see uh, Fushi the dog seems to be in all these different pictures, but there he is over there with his mustache. Leaping out of no man's land. So the, in the story of Addie, he's actually, you know, I'm filling in a lot of details quick because the goal isn't to teach some autobiographical sketch at some deep level. But he is actually going to be awarded two iron crosses, which is a symbol of bravery. And in one situation, his commanding officer is in no man's land, injured. And he is going to jump out of no man's land, run to him, pick him up, and carry him back to the trench. And he's going to get the, uh, a, a, an iron cross for that, decorated by the Kaiser. I mean, that's, that's pretty amazing. So if you're going to measure our guy so far, you're going to be saying, all right. I'm impressed. That, that's, that's pretty good. Uh, and it's not just one iron cross that he is going to win. He's actually going to win a second iron cross, and this time running through enemy fire to deliver a message. So it's like, you need to get this message here, but it's under enemy fire, and he's going to run straight through it. And so he's going to actually get a first-class iron cross. His other one was a second-class iron cross, which you know, to me, I'm not an expert in iron crosses, but first class does make more sense to me. You know, that, that, that's even more esteemed. However, uh, what, what I'm saying is I'm showing you a sincere soldier here. I'm showing you something that for all practical purposes is very impressive on the human side. So the battles Addie Heidler fought, he fought in the first Battle of Ypres in 1914, the Battle of the Somme in 1916, the Battle of Fromelles in 1916, the Battle of Arras in 1917, the Battle of Passchendaele in 1917. 
So that, that's quite a, a war history. There's very few people that are going to come back even from his regiment. So here's uh, one more picture of Addy with uh, his dog there again. The Bavarian List Regiment, 360 men were in the Bavarian List Regiment, and they headed off to war in 1914. Only 60 returned. That's quite something. And so you could just imagine how this would damage the inner terrain of a young man. And the trauma that these men are going to go through is so extreme that it's hard for us in 2022 to measure that or to understand that that you're going to start out with something called patriotism, loyalty, honor, duty, self-sacrifice. Every single thing I named is something that probably most of us in here would esteem. And we're like, that's good stuff. Those are good motivations. And yet the end result for an entire generation of men that remain, because most of the men in this generation were totally wiped out, the results in their souls was you're going to see over the next generation a departure from Christianity, a departure from old values, a departure from what their, their parents taught them because they are going to be so disillusioned by what they are going to encounter. And they're going to realize that self-sacrifice, honor, duty, patriotism didn't lead to the results that they thought they would. I mean, if a good German goes out and fights with honor, rescues his commanding officer, gets an iron cross, runs through to deliver a message, gets an iron cross, I mean, this is nobility at its highest level. And then, what if your government sells you out? What if they agree to peace terms which basically put Germany under the boot of the Allies? And that's exactly, in Addie's mind, what is going to happen. So the hardening of a generation, World War I trauma is going to lead to World War II trauma. You see, it's almost like, you know, in the Bible you have so-and-so begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so. You get a little momentum going. You get a lot of begatting. Uh, and then in war, you're going to see a similar thing, that the trauma in that trench in Ypres is going to lead to trauma in another trench. You study certain dynamics of war, like especially one of the ones I've probably spent more time than I should have on is the Eastern Front in World War II, which is a very depressing battle, but it's like very int intriguing to me. It's Stalin versus Hitler, okay? And it's not a, not a fun thing to look at. But Hitler is going to declare that he wants an extermination war. So he's going to kill not just soldiers, but he's going to go through any village, any town, and kill everyone in it. That's what his soldiers are commanded to do. So how do you think the Russians are going to respond to this? Okay, Hitler's extermination war is going to create a retaliation from the Russians of an extermination war. So when they begin to march back towards Berlin, which is the end of World War II, how do you think the Russians are handling the Germans? What you have is trauma begets trauma. Evil begets evil. And so when you get into the dynamics of World War, you begin to realize this isn't really solving anything. This is the war to end all wars, but actually it turns out to be the war that starts all wars, and it's going to define the next 100 years of history. So Ronald Skirth, who was a British soldier, said, disillusion is very, very bitter when you're young, thoughtful, imaginative, and sensitive. 
Samuel Hines, uh, who's a historian, writes it this way. A generation of innocent young men, their heads full of high abstractions like honor, glory, and England, went off to war to make the world safe for democracy. They were slaughtered in stupid battles planned by stupid generals. Those who survived were shocked, disillusioned, and embittered by their war experiences and saw that their real enemies were not the Germans, but the old men at home who had lied to them. They rejected the values of the society that had sent them to war and in doing so separated their own generation from the past and from their cultural inheritance. That's a pretty good summary of what you're going to see. You're going to see a hardening. You're going to see such deep hurt that is going to take place. Now, in Addie Heidler's situation, since he's going to survive, right, he's going to die at the end of World War II. So just to give you uh, a range of time for his life, he is going to be in the aftermath of this. You know, he's going to finish the war at age 29, and he's going to be in a hospital blinded. And then he's going to find out after he, he's getting out of the hospital, after trying to recover from this blindness, and I think he had recovered, and then he's going to hear about the Treaty of Versailles which is how the war is going to end. And I don't want to give any spoiler alerts uh, for that, but it's devastating to the Germans. And it's a sellout from the German side. And so he is literally going to be so angry that his blindness is going to return. He's going to end up back in the hospital. This, this man is going to struggle with such extreme volatile anger. But if you say, who are you angry with, Addy? He's angry with those that sold out his country, that stabbed him in the back. He's not angry with the British. He's not angry with the French. He's angry with, in a sense, his own country, but a very specific group in his own country. He's going to call them the Bolsheviks. The blinded soldier, traumatized and vengeful. So this is Addy Heidler in his book, My Battle. When I was confined to bed, the idea came to me that I would liberate Germany that I would make it great. I knew immediately that it would be realized. Addie Heidler writes a book, and the rest is history. His name is Adolf Hitler. That man who started as a sincere soldier, who is going to demonstrate honor, he would not drink with his buddies, and he was made fun of, he was mocked, because he was a sensitive sort. He was an artist. He wasn't built for th some of these things. And yet, he was a man who had a patriotic fervor, and he dearly loved his country. And he is going to sacrifice for his country. He is going to see his friends die for his country. And then he is going to feel like his country betrays him. But not his country. Germany, in its truest sense, is still there because he embodies it. It's the Bolsheviks, which he is going to define as the Jews that did this to Germany. And so you're going to see World War II as retribution. You're going to see the results of what starts as a sincere soldier that is marked by love and devotion and honor and self-sacrifice and courage and bravery and duty. All these things that every single one of us would go, yes. Addy, you have the stuff. And by the way, his name was Addy Heidler. Uh, that, that was his name. So I wasn't, I wasn't making something up there. It's just how you pronounce it or write it. And so we know it as Hitler instead of Heidler. And we know him as Adolf instead of Addy. But his name to the other soldiers was Addy. 
real character in World War I. The Battle of Passchendaele, it's interesting because he's on one side. You know who's on the other? J.R.R. Tolkien was fighting for the British in the same battle. Isn't that just an odd thought? Doesn't it seem like there should be something done with that, that J.R.R. Tolkien is on one side of the Battle of Passchendaele and Adolf Hitler is on the other? It's just weird because we don't oftentimes think of the individual people that are a part of these battles. We just see mobs. We see masses. And yet individual people are what come out of this. And he's going to write a book called Mein Kampf, which means typically translated my struggle, but I didn't want to translate it as my struggle, so I translated it as my battle, just in case I could try and at least dupe some of you as we went through this, uh, because that's part of the fun. You know, Daily Thunder is a story, and you don't want to give away the end of the story. The Fields of Flanders. So what we talked about in the last message was the stalemate that is going to take place in the Fields of Flanders, and this is where so many men are going to die. And this is my sub-point on this, which is an extremely interesting meditation that I'm going to head into uh, as we sort of bring this together, where sincerity, heroism, duty, sacrifice, and friendship are turned into evil weapons. How could any of those things be bad? And yet, what you're going to see is that the Germans, which are moved by these very things, the French, which are moved by these very things, the British, which are moved by these very things, the Russians, which are moved by these very things, the Serbians, the Austria-Hungarians, they're moved by the same things, and they turn into weapons to destroy. These qualities were not meant to destroy. God made these virtues on, for a reason, but isn't it amazing that a virtue can actually be leveraged as a weapon? And that's what we see in World War I, is we see a contorting of something that is actually good. And it is, and for instance, if we just take Addy, you like the guy. You feel for the guy. You're impressed with the guy. And yet none of you want to admit it after you find out that he's Adolf Hitler. It's like, well, no, I was never supportive of America. When you were describing, I said, something's wrong here. And yet the makings of an evil man isn't always what we think it is. Yes, there's trauma in his life. He lost both his parents. Yes, he had a very hard father. But there's a lot of people with that. You could still overcome that. But something is going to derange this man, and technically it's going to happen in and through this war. And you're going to see something that he esteemed in a positive sense turned and it's going to lead to an, a hatred. It is going to lead to some of the strongest human emotions of vengeance that you can nurture and nurse, and it's going to allow evil into his life. I read this at the beginning. A.W. Tozier said something like this, okay? Just in case you look it up, you're like, I can't find that exact quote. Yeah, well, that would be the reason. Sincerity doesn't save you from being wrong. You can sincerely believe something that doesn't mean you're believing the right thing. Almost everyone out there right now, ideologically speaking, is not believing something because they believe it to be wrong. They're believing it because they believe it to be right, and they're sincere. But the fact that they're sincere doesn't convert their belief into a correct belief. There is truth and there is lie, and as a result, it's the truth that sets free. The lie leads to captivity. The devil wants you to be sincere. He's not against you being sincere, but he wants you to be sincere in the wrong direction. 
The devil is not concerned about you being self-sacrificing. It's for you being self-sacrificing for the glories of Jesus. He doesn't mind you being honorable. He doesn't mind you being courageous as long as you use it in the wrong way. Think about in World War II uh, the, uh, oh boy, I, I, kamikazes. Boy, my, my brain in World War II is like, seems to, uh, and what was it, the zip line? I couldn't remember the zip line either. But the kamikazes in World War II, what were they doing? They were patriotic. They were zealous for their faith. They believed the emperor was God, by the way, in Japan, Hirohito. And they were willing to lay down their life for something higher than them. Now, how could you take that away from them? That's noble. They were sincere, but sincerely wrong. And it is going to lead to devastation. It is not going to lead to life. So I have a quote, and you know, this is a very accurate quote, since it's my quote. And it's not A.W. Tozier, it's E.W. Ludi. Heroism doesn't make you holy. Self-sacrifice doesn't make you a saint. Running toward the battle doesn't make you righteous. And taking a bullet doesn't turn you into a triumphant believer. And I don't know if you can feel the distinctions here, but there are certain behaviors that are really good. They're noble in their nature, and they're something that we should esteem. However, if you think that that is what saves you, you're missing out on actually how Christianity works. And this is called a replacement savior, where your good deeds become your reason why you think you're a good person and why you should be allowed into heaven. And most people on earth feel that they're a good person. That's, you, you, ever do, you ever follow uh, Ray Comfort? He asks people all the time, do you think you're a good person? And I mean, almost 100% say that they are. And then he starts asking them questions, and then by the end, end of the time they're talking with them, they're like, okay, I'm not a good person. However, to themselves, they believe they are. And yet, that doesn't mean they're right. The fellow laborer. So let's look at a character in Scripture in the New Testament. His name is Demas. And so if you know the, the story of Pilgrim's Progress, then you're familiar with Demas, and he was the guy that had a gold mine uh, that he tried to get Christian and faithful off track. Uh, and however, in the Bible, there isn't a gold mine, uh, just in case you're wondering. But he is a very real character, and so Pilgrim, John Bunyan's uh, Pilgrim's Progress is based on this same uh, study. His name means governor of the people, so I, I, don't, I cannot think of a better picture of Adolf Hitler here than like a Demas. Someone who has the right intentions, has the right motives, but is then going to be steered in the wrong way. So Colossians 4.14 says, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. So at the end of the book of Colossians, you're going to have the farewells. And in all of Paul's letters, you have these farewells. And whoever is with him is going to greet as well. And Demas is along with Paul. He's a fellow laborer, as we see in Philemon. It says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. So you have, Paul, you have Demas who is working alongside Paul. Now, if we were to liken Paul to being the truth, right, the gospel of Jesus Christ, this guy has the right intention. And yet something is going to disturb Demas. 2 Timothy 4, 9 through 11 Paul is going to say to Timothy, be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica. Only Luke is with me. 
And so what you're going to see is a departure, a departure from the truth to something else. And what we see is it's a departure for a love of this present world. Now, for us, Adolf Hitler is not a very applicable character for us, okay? It, my mom used to say, Eric, you can become just like Adolf Hitler. And that used to bother me, by the way. I wasn't a big fan of that statement. I know what she means. You know, in hindsight, I can look back and say, okay, mom, I know what you're talking about. Yes, I have the same propensities. I can head in that direction. But it's just a very grotesque type of illustration. But it's true. We have the propensity towards evil, selfishness, and sin. We do. And if it's cultivated, if it's fostered, if we allow grievance and resentment and bitterness to form within us and vengeance and hatred and murder to be fostered in our heart, and then we get a position of leadership, yeah, all sorts of bad things could happen in and through us as well. However, just by teaching you Addie Hitler, Addie Heidler, doesn't necessarily give you a clear understanding of what do I do with it? What is my practical life uh, lived as a result? Now, first of all, the first thing I, I want us to tag in our life is replacement saviors. They're very uh, sneaky because they creep in. Like, for instance, let me give you an example. Your quiet time with God. Okay, now, if I were to say, is a quiet time a good thing? You'd say, yes and amen. However, did you know that a quiet time can be something that you put salvific weight upon? It's like, so why do you know that you're right with God? Well, because I have a quiet time every day. And so what you're doing is you're leaning on something other than Christ, even though it's good, as a replacement savior. So it's like, if I just have my quiet time, if I get up early, okay, that's like classic Eric Ludi. It's like, if I get up early and I have discipline in my life, that will then garner me favor in heaven. And what can happen is you can subtly increase the value of something that has value, but you're overinflating it in your understanding and placing it higher than your relationship with Christ and your faith in Christ, your confidence and your leaning on Christ. And so when I say that they're sneaky, I mean it. In other words, just as a German could go to war to fight the Kaiser's battle, and he could take a bullet. I mean, uh, he's going to end up in the hospital multiple times. He has, uh, has a bullet into his thigh. He's blinded by some kind of gas. I mean, this guy's going to have a rough go at it, right? He's like, but he won two iron crosses. Yay. And yet his life is hard, but he's suffering in his body. And he could say, look at how good of a German I am. You see, this is the measurement of my goodness as a German. You see my two iron crosses? And he's going to wear that iron cross first class for his entire life. It's one of the three medals he's going to wear on his uniform. You can see pictures of Hitler. You're going to see that iron cross there. In other words, he is going to boast in that. It's like, look, this is my Germanness right here. This is what makes me a good German. And the same thing is true for you. If I were to immediately throw a question your way and say, what makes you a good Christian? Well, that's a trick question, Eric. Well, what are you trying to do? You see, what we have a tendency to do is evaluate our disciplines to evaluate the virtues that we show forth. And it's like, do you see what I do here? Do you see how I serve here? Do you see how much time I spend here? And yet, technically, what makes you good in God's eyes is the clothing of righteousness that Christ surrounds us with by our faith and trust in Him. You see, it's actually not our work, but His work. Now, we know that doctrinally, and that's why I say this is sneaky. 
for us to freshly resolve that we are not saved by our own goodness. We are saved by His goodness. And no matter how high we build our pile of cash goodness on this side, and we save up and we show, it's like, hey, if God ever wants to do an audit on me, look at all these good deeds I'm doing. No matter how high that gets, it is not sufficient to pay entry into the heavenly realms, which is a shocking statement. In other words, you could come to Christ, you could have grace, and you could save up all these good works, but it's still not your good works that get you in. You know what all that good behavior is doing for you, though? if you're not looking at it for salvific purposes, is it's changing you into the image of Christ. You see, when you agree with the Spirit and you do that which is right, it impacts you and those around you. It's life-giving, but it's not what earns you favor in God's eyes. It's not what makes you perfect. It's not what makes you righteous. That's accomplished by Jesus Christ. His cross work is the great secret to our perfection, to our righteousness, to our holiness. Underneath that clothing, he is working on us. But we do not ever want to place salvific weight there. These are good things. Taking a bullet in battle is a good thing. It's noble to hop out of that no man's land to rescue your commanding officer. I would highly encourage you to do it. However, if you did it, that does not mean you end up in heaven. Isn't that a weird thought? You could risk your life to rescue your commanding officer and not end up in heaven? That's like startling if you think about it. Because to us, it's such a good deed. And it deserves some sort of reward, but it is not sufficient. And that's why Paul is going to call it filthy rags. All the times he jumped out of the, uh, out of the trench to rescue a commanding officer, he is not putting any confidence in that to earn him righteousness. And that is why I'm saying it's sneaky. Because it's good to do these things. It is right. It showcases Christ in this realm to behave a certain way. But our confidence must be in the work of Jesus Christ. The mistake of loving the present world. This is the mistake that Demas is going to make. So listen to uh, it described by Jesus in Luke 17, 26 through 33. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. So there seems to be two dimensions to our life, and Jesus seems to be touching on something here. And this is important for all of us to just freshly hear. That there are certain things in this world the goods of this world that are very easy to be swayed by. And what I could say is the goodness as defined by this world. Right now we have something called social correctness and political correctness. And if you wear that clothing, the world will like you. 
I was just talking to a guy who's uh, one of the head guys in a very, very large business in America. And one of the pressures that he's facing is that they, everyone needs to take a stand on whether it was BLM back in 2020, but now it's like the decision of the Supreme Court on Roe v. Wade. And you need to come out and say that you are not supportive as an organization, as a business. And if you don't, well, we don't know what will happen, but if you really want to be cool, if you really want to show the virtue of the world you know, that they esteem, this is how you do it. And in every generation you have it. In this time period when Adolf Hitler was going to war, there was a certain demonstration of virtue, a correctness. And he demonstrated it. And one of the reasons he's going to have such a strong voice is because he demonstrated the virtue that speaks true German. And yet for us, we need to recognize the difference between finding our identity in this world and finding our satisfaction in the world's validation and being willing to leave that. And even though the world may not validate us, and even though we may look weak in the world's eyes, we need to be willing to let something go. So one of the, the statements here is, when the Son of Man is revealed, it will be like in the days of Noah. It'll be like in the days of Lot. They were buying, they were selling, they were getting married. They were just doing life. And suddenly, boom, something is going to shift. And in that day of proving, where's your focus? And the illustration that is given is if you're on the housetop and your goods are in the house, do not go down to the house to get your goods. And just that line is so obscure in Scripture. It's like a very clear command from the King of kings and the Lord of lords to us. When I come, first thing I'm going to test is where your focus is. Are you going to be Lot's wife? Is your focus still going to be back in Sodom and Gomorrah? And so literally as you're leaving, you're wanting to turn and go back and get your goods? Because you don't want to lose them. You have a tie to this world. Demas had a tie to this world. And as a result, the system of the world held him. In the day of testing, the reason he is going to leave Paul is because Paul is thrown into prison. And he is going to abandon Paul in the day of testing. When that day of testing comes, are you going to cling to the things of this world, the validation of the world, the goodness as described by the world, or are you going to go with Christ? And so what we are going to see in every step of the way is there is a sincerity that can lead you into darkness. And it can be validated by the world as that's good, that's good, that's great. We will even award that. We will give you another award for that behavior. And yet, God is saying, I am looking for something different. That does not mean he's against duty, he's against honor, he's against uh, patriotism in its, in its essence, as if it's a bad thing. However, there is something that God is after, and if he doesn't get to the kernel of our soul in going after it, we can be lost. And so when the Son of Man is revealed, and we are on the housetops, how are we relating to the goods in our house? The other day when we had that three-inch hail uh, that was threatened, we never ended up getting it, but when it was threatened, my first thought went to the two vehicles that I had parked outside, and I was thinking about what a pain it's going to be to have to go to the insurance company and go through the claim on that. And what I, what the, what I sense God doing in me, in and through this, is just sort of putting my fing his finger on that, saying, when I am revealed, are you willing to let that go? 
are you willing to give up all of this? Because if you're not willing to give it up now, you're not gonna be willing to give it up when the day comes and you're on the housetop and you're gonna forget that scripture and you're gonna run down to get your goods. And you know, Lot's wife, it says, remember Lot's wife. <laughs> what an interesting statement, remember Lot's wife. Could you imagine sticking that on your wall at home? Remember Lot's wife. Well, what am I gonna remember about Lot's wife? She was turned into a pillar of salt? Well, okay, that would help. Why? In other words, there seems to be some hold that when the Son of Man was revealed, and when that day came, she looked towards her goods. She seemed to look back towards something, and that created a dynamic in her soul that went against what God had required of them. And I want to go in the right direction. I want us to go in the right direction. We have a world that just like in the days of Noah and Lot is growing more and more evil. And yet there's things we need to deal with, clothes and uh, cars and houses and marriage. They're just things, right? And they're not bad in and of themselves. However, they cannot have a hold that is greater than God. And at every juncture in our life, we need to freshly relinquish anything but Christ. That even the goodness that the world would esteem and the behaviors that the world could stand up and applaud, that we say, I do not find any confidence in that. In fact, I'm willing to consider it filthy rags. My confidence and my boast is in Jesus Christ. That is our message. That has always been the message of the church, and that is our message today. If Jesus is revealed in this moment, are there any snags to your soul? Any things that you want to protect? You know, if there's a three-inch hailstorm coming and it's going to destroy everything you own, unless you can get it into a barn, what is your tendency? It's like, well, let's get it into a barn. But at the same time, I want us to be measured to say, are we willing to let go of the things of this earth? The iron crosses of this earth, the applause of this earth, so that we can be fully Christ's, so that we can be a sincere soldier that is also sincerely correct. Father, I ask that you would demonstrate your power in our lives and that you would set us free from the snags and the baits of the enemy. And Lord Jesus, that we would not fall prey to the snail mate battle in Ypres, but that we would be able to fight your battles, that we would yield to you, that we would give up our life and say it belongs to you, Lord. We want to forsake all that we have and we want to gain all that you are. Lord Jesus, may we freshly prioritize around the kingdom pattern. And may we not just be someone who is doing good in the world's eyes, but may we be one who finds our goodness in your great work at the cross. Lord, you have done it, and we want to find our refuge there in the shelter of your righteousness. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we ask this. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.